I love a good cookout. I love everything about a cookout. I love that the days are longer and the weather is warmer. I love the children running around playing in the yard or the park. I love the aunties sitting under the tent or in the shade talking about people. I love the uncles too, who at some point find their way magically to the trunk of the car. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I love the outfits, the joyful colors, the short sets, little hats, whatever. And you know I love the food. And at the center of the cookout is the grill, is the grill master. I love the grill master. I like to go over and just sort of hang out and talk with whoever's on the grill. Get that smoke in my clothes, that aroma. And that's where the hookup happens, right? Because every once in a while, if you're really tight with the grill master, he'll be like, I got some steaks over there on the side. Don't, don't mess with the hot dogs, right? Well, he'll tell you, you know, I got some fresh fish coming out the, coming out the fryer, right? So you stand over there with the grill master and, and you, you, you get hooked up, right? And I love the way people even leave cookouts with like big old plates of food, you know, falling off the side, a little, little aluminum foil on top and, and loud. All right, now I'm gone, y'all. I mean, that's just our cookout. Some of y'all go to barbecues. It's not the same thing. Most of all, I love being with the people. Even as an introvert, there's something about meeting together around a smoking grill and good food that just, just gives me joy. Nothing like a great cookout. And maybe you asked the question this morning, what do cookouts have to do with Leviticus? Well, beloved, I want to impress upon you that the opening chapters to Leviticus are really an invitation to a cookout with God. Everything we're going to see happen in these three chapters around this altar where animals are burned, inside a tent where people would gather, all of it, is about enjoying being with God and with the people of God, celebrating a memorial meal. That's what Leviticus is about. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to think about this in three parts. Number one, we're going to think about God's invitation to the cookout. We see that in chapter one, verses one and two, God's invitation to the cookout. Number two, we're going to see God's menu for the cookout. That's really going to be the rest of chapter one all the way to the end of chapter three. And finally, we're going to talk about Israel's failure to come to the cookout. Israel's failure to come to the cookout. And there we're going to jump over to Amos chapter five and a few places in the New Testament. God's invitation. It's right there in verses one and two. Now, here's the thing about cookouts, at least cookouts in, in my community where I grew up. You just don't show up at the cookout uninvited and empty-handed, right? You, you need an invitation, and you need to at least offer to bring something, right? Well, that's what we have in verses 1 and 2, both the invitation and the offering. Look there in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1 again. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. Now, in the Jewish faith, this book is not called Leviticus. That name was given to it by later Christian commentators who were probably focused in pretty tightly on the, on the Levites and the role of the Levites. But the, the Jewish community, the Jewish faith, really names this book after those first couple of words, the Lord called. I like that. I like that because it points out several things, several important things about the, the worship of God. Number one, it reminds us that we cannot approach God unless God calls us. That's why in every service that we have here, in, in honor of this reality, we have in the order of service a call to worship. That's a passage from God's word where God speaks to us and calls us to come to him, to worship him. It's God who initiates worship. Unholy and sinful creatures cannot just willy-nilly enter the presence of a holy God. I mean, I mean, a sinner can try that, but God be like, who invited you to the cookout? 
If you think I'm pressing the cookout metaphor too far, just later look at Matthew 22, 11 to 14, where Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of heaven being like a wedding banquet and the, the man inviting lots of people and people didn't come. And so he went out and got people from the highways and byways and brought them in. There's a section there, verses 11 to 14, where he sees somebody not dressed appropriately for the wedding. And you're like, how you get in here? And he casts them out. But there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can't come to God uninvited. Here's the second thing that verse um, suggests to us, that, that, that phrase, the Lord called, also reminds us that God speaks. The talking God, the true and the living God, is not like the idols that men and women make. The true God is not a carving. He's not a statue made with human hands. And the problem with those kinds of gods is already depicted or described for us in the Bible. You can write this down or look there with me. Psalm 135, verses 15 and 18. The psalmist says this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths, meaning they're not alive. Those who make them, listen, become like them, so do all who trust in them. You serve a false god who does not speak, does not see, does not hear, is not alive, then like that false god, you will become deaf, dumb, and blind too spiritually dead, cut off from the living God. But the true God is alive, beloved, and he speaks and he sees and he hears. He's spoken to us in the olden days of the Old Testament through the prophets, through visions and words, etc. He speaks even through the creation, Psalm 19 says, that the heavens declare his handiwork day after day and night after night. The very creation is speaking, pouring forth speech in every human language. We're told that he's spoken to us in Hebrews 1 in these last days through his son, who is the living, the incarnate word. And he speaks to us even subjectively, doesn't he? Prompting us, reminding us, coaxing us, calling us. Here's a God who speaks and says, come to my cookout. Here's the third thing that it implies. The, the Lord speaks and calls us so we can meet with him. Notice where God called Moses from in verse 1. He called him from the tent of meeting. The tent of what? Y'all talk back to me now. Most of y'all from Baptist backgrounds. Talk back. He called from what? The tent of meeting. In Exodus 26, God gave Moses specific instructions for making a tent or a tabernacle. That tent or tabernacle would be God's home among the people of Israel while they journeyed in the wilderness. It's where God's glory dwelled. You see that in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 38. But it's not just a tent. It's not just a tabernacle. It is the place where this holy God meets with his people. It's the spot for their date, for their rendezvous, for their fellowship, for their party, face to glory. It's where God meets with his people. Beloved, the book of Leviticus is one long call to meet God at his house for a holy meal of worship. And we, we sometimes get so focused on the details of the sacrifices and our stomachs get a little queasy at the mention of all of this blood. But when we do that, we lose sight of the purpose. We can have sort of busy Martha hearts and miss that God is calling us to a Mary-like presence at his feet. We have a God we can meet with. We have a God who desires to be with us. Now, I don't know 
what your relationship with God feels like this morning. If he feels really near or really distant, if it feels really warm or really cold. I don't, I don't know if you feel like you're breaking through ice to get to him or, or if it's like fire shut up in his bones. But this I know. He wants to be with you. And all we need to do is come. Cold, distant, lonely, icy, warm, joyful, vibrant, whatever. Whatever God who speaks to us and calls us to come. And here's the last thing to notice about this first verse. This invitation to God's cookout goes to all of Israel. It goes to everyone. See there at the beginning of verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you. So the entire nation is invited to meet with their God. Every individual has this tremendous opportunity and privilege to go to the place of meeting and behold the glory of God and enjoy fellowship with him. It's always been God's desire. It's never been more his desire than it is right now. And he calls us to come. Notice now, not just to respond to that invitation, but to respond with an offering. That's what we see in verse 2. When God called Israel to meet with him, they were not supposed to show up empty-handed. They were to bring an offering. An offering is a gift given to God in worship. In the Old Testament, it could have been animals, as we see here in these first few chapters of Leviticus. But it could have been other things, too. It could have been money. It could have been land and houses. It could have been people. You could dedicate anything to God and offer anything to God. Now, what's important about the offering is not its monetary value. What's important about the offering is the heart of the offerer. We see that as early as Cain and Abel, don't we? One brother brings an offering that pleases God. Another brother brings an offering. We're not told what precisely was wrong, but, but it displeased God. What matters is the heart of the offerer, that the heart comes in faith, that it comes freely, that it comes joyfully. So you read, we read chapters like Leviticus chapters 1 and 3, and, and, and we see all of these offerings and sacrifices, and we think of them as commands of God that, that Israelites were forced to do. So we imagine them going grudgingly to the tent of meeting, dragging a bull, dragging a cow. Ah, oh, we're going to get bloody today. I don't want... It wasn't like that. There were times where offers, offerings were commanded, like the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. But what we're reading here in Leviticus chapters 1 to 3 are free will offerings. These are offerings that people brought freely, gladly, not things that they were forced to do, but, but voluntarily. When any one of you, the text says. Listen, beloved. God is not looking for hostages to worship him. He's in search of people who will come to him with free will offerings, with glad hearts, with joyful praise. Is that you this morning? Are you a hostage at church this morning? I gotta go. Remember when I was a little kid, there are a few kids in here with us still. When I was a little kid and my mom would go through those seasons of making us go to church, I, I went like a hostage kicking and screaming, you know, trying to be late because my mom didn't like to be late. If I could make her late, maybe I can get out of it. And, and they would sit there, be made to sit still for like two hours. And wasn't no such thing in a little black church I grew in. Wasn't no such thing as children's church. Children's church was a piece of peppermint out of your grandma's bag. And a pinch if you ain't act right. I ain't never been so bruised as going to church as a kid. God don't want us like that in, in his gathering with his people. I want us glad, coming in, rejoicing, excited to be with him. Now, from the opening verses, I hope we recognize how gracious God is. He's the one who calls us to himself, even, even though he didn't have to. He's the one that, that welcomes anyone who would come, not, not 
playing respectability politics, not trying to be with the right people, not trying to set up the, the right circle of worshipers who somehow look, make him look good in some worldly sense. He's like, no, anyone who would come to me, come. From the busted and disgusted to those who are just bossing and flossing. Calls us all. And he speaks to us even though we often ignore his voice, don't we? That's what God is like. He's so full of grace. Despite the failings of his people, God remains a God of kindness. That, that means he, he is kind to us even, even when we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. And everything that happens in these chapters must be seen in light of God's grace, in light of his kindness, in light of his generous character. A holy God calls unholy people to meet with him. Here's an invitation of grace we should never ignore. Come to the cookout. Come meet with God. He won't crush you. He won't reject you. Welcome you. He'll be like that father that was standing watching for the prodigal. Who, when he saw him at a great distance, the Bible said, raised his robe and ran to meet and welcome his son and clothe him and give him the ring, the family crest. This is God. What he's like. He gives us an invitation to be in his presence. Let's not reject it. So that's the invitation to the cookout. Now notice in the rest of the book here, really through chapters one to five, but we'll or one to six, but we'll we'll look mainly here at chapters one to three. Uh, we get the menu for the cookout. We get the menu for the cookout. We'll look at these first three offerings here. Number one is the burnt offering. That's what we see in chapter one. The burnt offering could come from one of three sources. You see there in verse three, it come it could come from the herd. That is the, the, the livestock, the bulls. Or it could, verse 10, come from the flock. Now that would be um, lambs or sheep, goats. Or verse 14, it could come from birds. And one of those animals would be acceptable for the offering. The, the one animal that, that would not be, or type of animal that would not be acceptable would be wild animals. They didn't belong to anybody. And so as an offering, they didn't cost anybody. Right? So the offering is something that you're giving personally out of your own possession, from your herd, from your flock, or from birds. Now, why those three categories? Well, this seems to be so that whether rich or poor, the ancient Israelite could participate. A male bull from the herd or flock would have been expensive. So would a lamb. But birds, by comparison, would have been inexpensive. Would have been cheap. So let's see this in the scripture itself in a couple of places. Just look over in chapter 5, Leviticus chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 7 and verse 11. Verse 7 says, but if he cannot afford a lamb, look at God, in worship, being sensitive to the material needs or resources of his people. If he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Verse 11 says much the same thing. If he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. We get the same thing. Look over in Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. This is a chapter that is focused on um, um, purity and, and cleanness in the situation of childbirth. So it gives the sort of instructions about sacrifice and cleanliness in that case. Chapter 12, verse 8 says this. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now, here's what I find really interesting about this detail. In Luke chapter 2, verse 24, some of you will remember. Joseph and Mary take Jesus at eight days old to the temple to dedicate him and to make an offering for him. You remember what they made? They made an offering 
of two turtle doves and two pigeons. I think that's pretty clear evidence that our Lord Jesus was born to poor parents. If Jesus was born in poverty, there's no shame in poverty as such. We don't have to be proud of being poor or settle for a life of poverty, but there's no shame in poverty. Our, our Savior came into the world through a poor family and identifies with us in our poverty. Here's the other thing I take from this, that God intends his poor followers to have just as much access to him as his rich followers. As one commentator put it, God would be as pleased with the poor man's bird as the rich man's bull. There's no partiality with God. God means it when he says, whenever anyone comes to him, and he seems to have a special regard for those anyone's who are on the margins. And beloved, this is why we exist as a church and exist where we exist as a church. We, we quite intentionally called by God to try and establish a gospel community uh, in neighborhoods, not only ours, but throughout the city and through the Creek Collective throughout the country, in neighborhoods that are marked by vulnerability, that are neglected, that are defined as poor, where most, sad to say, Christians don't want to go. But God has a regard for those neighborhoods. He has a regard for the people in our neighborhood made in his image and his likeness, and he wants them to come to him through the gospel of his son and to worship and to fellowship with him. It's always been so. Not something we made up. It's right here in the text of the Bible. And so this burnt offering was to be participated in by everyone, depending on whatever means they had. Now, the burnt offering required worshipers, you notice there, to kill the offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Before killing the animal, they had to lay, the owner had to lay their hands on the animal. Now, that's probably for two reasons. Practically, they're inside this tent of meeting, and you're not the only one. You're there with other worshipers who also have animals. This would have been a, a scene with some commotion. And so practically, laying your hands on the animal was a way of saying, this is the one I brought. This is my animal. But more importantly, symbolically and theologically, the laying on of hands on the animal before killing the animal was to identify with the animal. It was, as it were, to symbolically suggest that the sins that I am here to sacrifice for are laid on this animal. And this animal who's about to shed his blood sheds his blood in my place. Because from Genesis um, chapter 2, when God had Adam and Eve in the garden, he had established right from the beginning that the penalty of sin is what? Death. And so that promise made to Adam and Eve is now being dramatized in the offering of this animal and the laying of hands on this animal by the worshiper to symbolize that this animal is taking my sin and about to suffer my punishment. The owner would then kill the animal and butcher the animal, cut it up in certain parts that God describes here, give it to the priest, the priest would sprinkle blood on the altar and then burn the animal on the altar. And unlike all the other offerings, the burnt offering, except for the hide, was completely burned on the altar. It wasn't shared with the priest, wasn't eaten by the people, it belonged only to God. It was a burnt offering for sin. Now, notice verse 4. The purpose was to make atonement for the sins of the worshiper. Atonement is critically important in biblical religion. But the word itself is really mentioned mainly in Leviticus and Numbers. It's mentioned 110 times in the Old Testament. You don't find that word uh, quite used the same way in the New Testament. There are other words that are very close to it. Um, but this idea of atonement in, in the Hebrew here uh, carries with it the notion of covering. It's a great illustration of it. Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. Noah builds an ark. In the story of Noah building the ark, God's judgment is coming on the world in the form of a, a global flood. Noah builds this ark, and, and Genesis chapter 14 tells us he covered the ark with pitch. 
And that word there, pitch, and that covering, uh, the ark with pitch, is, is basically a, a, a related word to this word atonement. And it gives us a good picture of what the atonement does. It covers, like that pitch did on the ark, and protected the animals and people in the ark from the judgment coming in upon them. And that's what this blood does. It covers us. It covers the worshiper, covers their sin, and protects them from the judgment of God coming against the world because of sin. Every time an Israelite worshiper brought a bull or a lamb or bird to offer at the tent of meeting as a burnt offering, they were rejoicing in the fact that their sins and iniquities and transgressions were covered by this offering. That they were free from their sins. That God would be pleased with them and accept from their hand this offering that made them at one with him again. So that's the burnt offering. But also at the cookout is the grain offering. You see that in Leviticus chapter 2. This is the second offering described for us. The grain offering now, instead of a, an animal, could be made with fine flour, verse 3. Or it could be offered as unleavened bread. You see that down in verse 10. Or it could be even the first fruits of harvest and, and roasted vegetables, like uh, an ear of corn. You see that in verse 16. Uh, the grain offering could be prepared in different ways. It could be offered as flour, or it could be baked in the oven in verse 4 or baked on a griddle in verse 5, or cooked in a pan, verse 7. Apparently God likes cornbread at his cookout. And these different ways of preparation, this would allow a person, no matter their class or location, again, to participate in the offering. Not everybody had an oven. Much of Israel were shepherds out in the field, so they may have had a pan or a griddle more handy than an oven. But in any case, God is making provision for everyone to come, and in making provision, he's eliminating excuses, isn't he? No matter what form the offering took, notice it was always to be made with oil and frankincense. You see that in the second part of verse 2? And verse 13 tells us it was always to be offered with salt. All the offerings, in fact, had to be accompanied with salt. So y'all stop telling me to put, not put salt on my food. God had salt on his offerings at the cookout, right? But verse 11, it was never to be often with leaven or yeast and honey. And why always salt but never yeast and honey? Well, yeast and honey uh, is often used in the fermentation process, and it, it becomes symbolic in the Old Testament of, of something that corrupts. And in God's worship, there's no corruption. There's nothing there that is blemished. Everything is meant to be unblemished, uncorrupted. And salt, as you know, is symbolic of, of preservation, right? And so we are offering these holy sacrifices that are, that are meant to be preserved, that are meant to be kept, that are not to be corrupted. And, and this is symbolized in the adding of salt and the removal of any yeast or honey. And of course, salt is associated with God's covenant with Israel. It, it also symbolizes a kind of permanence that God's promises and God's sacrifice will have a permanent effect. Well, the ancient Israelite brought the grain offering to the priest. The priest would take what's called a memorial portion, a, a small amount, and place it on the altar, but the rest of it would be eaten by the priest. You'll see that in verses 8 to 10. You, you'll know that the, the priests basically got their food from the, from the offering system. They were a tribe that did not have uh, land. They didn't have an inheritance among the Israelites. God was their inheritance. And God has arranged this whole system of worship, not only to provide for Israel religiously, but to provide for the priests materially. But this offering must only be eaten in a holy place inside the tent of meetings. That's in chapter 6, verse 16. This offering was so holy that anything that touched it became holy. It was only for God and his priests. And the grain offering had a different purpose than the burnt offering. Instead of atonement, the grain offering was mainly about praise 
and thanksgiving. Verses 2 and 9 tell us it was a food offering, a pleasing aroma. It, it was meant for God's pleasure with his people. And then finally, there's the peace offering or the fellowship offering. We see that in chapter 3. The peace offering was a, a lot like the burnt offering. It could be made from the herd or made from the flock. The worshiper laid their hands on the offering before sacrificing it uh, and burning it. And the blood of, of both the burnt offering and the peace offering would have been sprinkled on the altar. But the peace offering was different in a couple of important ways. First, both male and female animals could be sacrificed in the peace offering. The burnt offering is only a male without blemish. Secondly, with the peace offering, there's always talk about fat. The fat is taken off the organs and removed from the animal and burned in the altar. You see that in chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. And as verse 16 puts it, all fat, all the fat is the Lord's. Many of you might have got a chuckle a couple weeks ago when Jackie Hill Perry did a little, a little reel about that, just reading through Leviticus and stumbling on this verse. And it's like, you know what? All the fat is the Lord's. So in the heavenly places, all this I'm carrying around here, we're going to get that to the Lord. We have rock hard abs. <laughs> but all the fat is the Lord's. He consumes it as his part of, of this memorial meal. Now, third, the, the peace offering would have been eaten by both the priests and the family making the offering. You see that in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 15 to 17. So this was now then a fellowship meal, a communion meal. The burnt offering belonged only to God, but the peace offering was to be shared in fellowship. And this, this symbolized communion with God. Why I call this a cookout. You see the picture of the offerings being given for us. Imagine them used in combination. Keep your finger in Leviticus chapter 3. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 15. It's the next book in the Bible. Turn over about, I don't know, 10 pages or so, 15 pages or so. You come to Numbers chapter 15. If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter 15, that's the big number. And when I say verse 1, that's the small number. So look with me in Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. And as I read this, you, you tell me what you think these sacrifices amount to. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. And say to them, when you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I'm giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of hen of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering with each lamb. You see the menu there? You're going to bring an offering of meat. Now, when you bring your meat, bring also some grain. And when you bring your grain, bring also some wine. It's a whole meal here. And there is some speculation among scholars that part of what goes wrong in Leviticus chapter 10, when Aaron's sons offer unauthorized fire, part of what went wrong was they were drinking the wine a little too much. Because right after God strikes them dead, God tells them, he tells Aaron and the rest of the priests, don't be drinking too much wine. Beloved, this was a party. This was a feast. This was a celebration. It had religious significance and theological uh, importance. And part of that significance and importance was we were getting together to enjoy our God. The combinations of the offerings make a complete meal. Meat, grain, vegetables, bread, wine. It's a whole cookout. God loves a good potluck. This is why I'm convinced God's Baptist. Nobody does a potluck like Baptist. We're meant to meet with our God and to enjoy our God. In the New Testament, of course, we don't have feasts like this. Now we're doing sacrifices and the like, but we do have the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, 
all of these kinds of things find their fulfillment uh, at the table where we wait for each other and eat together and, and commune with God. That's why we call it communion. We're in communication, in community, sharing with God and with each other. It's what God has always wanted. It's what God will have in the end. This is why in the end, heaven is depicted as a marriage supper. And all of God's people will be adorned as a bride. We'll meet the bridegroom when he comes. And we will eat at the wedding supper of the Lamb. This, I think, is meant to be a major picture shaping how we think of the Christian life. But the Christian life is not a life of rules. It's not a life of burdens. It's not a life of restrictions. It's, it's not a dour life. It's not a sour life. It's not a joyless life. If that's your Christian life, something's gone wrong. If you're a Christian and you're unhappy about being a Christian, something has gone wrong. If you're a Christian and you experience no joy, something has gone wrong. If you're a Christian and you're bored with the idea of meeting with God, something has gone wrong because the whole program is to sort of God gather for himself a people, give them a heart that desires him, and welcome them to himself. That's the whole program. And if that sounds really boring, something has gone wrong. Ask yourself this morning if something's gone wrong in your walk with the Lord, in your enjoyment of him. Is there feasting with him? Is there meeting with him? And if something's gone wrong, go to the Lord. Meet him at the tent. Offer yourself again. Ask him to fix it. We should come to our final set of observations here. God has invited Israel to the cookout. God has set the menu for the cookout. But Israel failed to come. See, from the, their beginning as a nation, Israel was supposed to be a holy nation dedicated to God, set apart from him, distinct from all the other nations, living under his rule, reflecting his character. And again, part of what that meant to be a holy nation dedicated to God was, was feasting with God as they met with him and worshiped. There's been this super abundance of provision and fellowship. The priests would be fed, the people would be fed, and God would be pleased with the aroma of it all. But over the course of their history, Israel failed to see the invitation and the grace God provided for them. They even, they even made the holy sacrifices of God unclean and common. That's one of the criticisms in the prophets, in the prophetical books of the Old Testament. One of the reasons that the prophets were raised up to challenge Israel. We can look at many places in the prophets to see this, but I want to direct us to just one. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 27. In the midst of Amos challenging Israel and preaching to the people of God about their corruptions, he, he comes to this issue of their sacrifices and their religious worship. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 27. Verse 21 begins this way, God speaking through uh, Amos right here, God speaking. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikkif, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. 
Does that sound like a God who's pleased? Oh, it's a holy God who's displeased with the the way his people have failed to be his people. They've carried on religious worship, but they live unjust lives. This is why he says in verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. They were not the righteous people of God that they were supposed to be in their dealings with each other and, and other societies. And so verse 23, your singing and your music, that's just there's noise in God's ears. And you see how verses 21 and 22, he, he seems to basically walk through Leviticus 1, 2, and 3. Your burnt offerings, you don't want those. Your grain offerings, I won't accept them. Your peace offerings of fattened animals, I don't want the fat from that. Instead, verse 26, 27, I'm going to send you to exile. Now just ponder for a moment how what we see in Amos is a complete reversal of what we saw in Leviticus. In Leviticus, God called out and said, come to me. In Amos, God calls out and says, depart from me. In Leviticus, God said, come, let's eat together. In Amos, God says, I despise your feasts. In Leviticus, this gracious God says, come to me and you will find atonement and acceptance and, and we will fellowship together. But in Amos, in Amos, he leaves them to their sin. It's a stark reminder that the sacrificial system could never accomplish what it symbolized. It could not accomplish a true atonement. It could only represent it. It could not accomplish a, a lasting peace with God. It, it could only hint at it. Those were symbols, but not the substance. A better tent would be needed. Better blood would be needed. A greater offering would be necessary. All these sacrifices were really designed to teach Israel to look for their Savior. They were pointers to the Son of God. This is why Jesus and his apostles so often used the imagery of Leviticus and the sacrificial system to, to, to help people understand what his life and his mission was about. You can write some of these verses down. We're just going to survey them a little bit. Jesus is the true tent of meeting. Did you know that? John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt there literally could be translated tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is amazing. This is amazing. What this means is that in the incarnation, we are no longer going to God uh, in, in a handmade tent, but God has come to us and pitched his tent among us. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 says, now the point in what we are saying is this. You want to understand Leviticus, read Hebrews together with it. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Notice verse 2. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. <laughs> not only does Jesus tabernacle among us in his flesh, but in his ascension now, after his resurrection, he is in the actual heavenly places, ministering for us on the right hand of God, that heavenly place, is the true tent, the final tent, the tent to which we are all destined if we believe in Christ. The writer of Hebrews is not done. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 to 24. This may be worth turning to so you can follow along with me in it. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 to 24. Notice the comparisons again. The writer says there, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, the, the tent of meeting and all the stuff, the furniture that was in it, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is the better tabernacle. It goes into the final tabernacle on our behalf. And, and Jesus' blood is the blood we need to cleanse us. Hebrews 9, 22 again says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That blood shed over and over again by the priests in the Old Testament, it symbolized cleansing, but it could not achieve cleansing. It would take the blood of the Son of God shed on Calvary's cross to cleanse us and to make us pure before God. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the sacrifice, therefore, that atones for our sins. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected or made holy for all time those who are being sanctified. That's the sacrifice we were looking for, beloved that once and for all time final sacrifice that makes all of us unholy people holy before God forever. And no wonder then that Jesus' cross becomes the true altar, doesn't it? Hebrews 13, 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That altar is the cross. The offering was Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's through Jesus that we make even our grain offering. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And each time we praise the Lord. It's the fulfillment of that praise that should have gone with the grain offering. It's the first fruits of our lips rather than a field. God is praised and Christ is exalted. Beloved, there's only one thing left to do. If Christ is our offering, his cross is the altar, his sacrifice and his blood cleanse us for the remission of sins, there's only one thing left to do. To lay our hands on it which we do by faith. It's by faith that we identify with Jesus as the sin bearer who takes our sins away and to the cross. It's by faith that we identify with Jesus as the one whose blood is shed for us. Life is in his blood. And it's by faith that we lay hold to his resurrection and the eternal life and the everlasting fellowship that is with God. All by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you can be, you ought to be, you should be. For God has sent you an invitation, even this morning in this sermon, saying, come to me. God has called you by name. You have heard him speak to you. And God is saying to you, come, there's a feast that I spread before you. Don't bring a bull. Don't bring a goat. Don't bring ears of corn. Don't bring money. You come. You come. I have, God said, prepared the offering for you. One that you could never replace. My own unique son. He has died for you on the cross to atone for your sin, to make you at one with me again, that you might be forgiven and accepted in the everlasting tent of glory. Come, forget your sins, confess them, leave them, trust in my son for an everlasting and perfect righteousness. He died once for all time so that everyone who believes in him would be holy forever with me. This is God calling you to the cookout. Come get that smoke in your clothes. Come eat from that altar. Come meet with that God. Confess, repent, believe, and be saved. And Christian, may we make this meeting with God every day, and as much of all day as possible. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for what you have done through Jesus. You have fulfilled all that the Old Testament prophesied and symbolized. What the blood of bulls and goats could not do, your son did with his own blood. Your righteousness, O Lord, that these sacrifices could not produce your son gives to us through faith in him. The life that is symbolized by the blood has been shed for us so that through that same blood, we might live forever. We thank you, O Lord, for showing us these things in your word. We pray that you would press it into our hearts. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us grace to hear your call and grace to come, and grace to rejoice with you as our portion, as our inheritance, as a kingdom of priests to you. Lord, we pray, bring us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.